From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. About 150,000 bacteria per sock. Wow, that's when they've been worn, right? No, it's after they've been washed. No. Did you no actually... issues at all with this person prior to the ticket. Absolutely yeah. none. Uh, absolutely would, none. Would you go to them again? No, absolutely not. You approaching people in the street. Yeah, I used to do that for years, yes. And asking about asking them about intimate details of their life. Yes. It's easier than you would think. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily. What comes into your house on the soles of your shoes? A British billionaire hoovers up a lavish estate in County Waterford and he shoots people, then asks questions. The man behind Humans of Dublin. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's now afraid to touch its own shoes. Let's start Playback Daily today with Oliver Callan doing some musings on one of the things Irish people love to talk about, property. Now I'm looking at um, nice houses for 30 million. 30 million euro will buy you the Ballinatray estate in Yall and County Cork, but it'll also buy you 30, 30 million pounds sterling will buy you Freddie Mercury's house in Kensington in London. Garden Lodge in Kensington was Mercury's residence from 1980 until his death in 1991. And of course, Mary Austin, who seemed to have inherited absolutely everything, and she sold quite a lot of um, the Bohemian Rhapsody stars wares last year. She's now selling the house that she's been living in since he died. She's 72 now, and she says, I wasn't really sure how I'd feel after selling all the other stuff, but I realised the time has come. She's been living alone in the house since her two children grew up and moved out and she wants to go uh, and sell the thing. It's £30 million. They do this strange thing where they don't say how big the house is. Uh, That's obviously some kind of strange British way. Just buy a big house in Kensington, it'll set you back £30 million sterling plus their enormous um, stamp duty, which comes to about 12%, which is um, a a lot higher than we have over here. But £30 would get you this estate in Yall, but unfortunately it's gone. It's been sold apparently to James Dyson, the uh, vacuum cleaner magnet. And the examiner says here a source revealed details of the off-market deal exclusively to the Irish examiner. It's a stunning looking house, lots of large windows sitting there in the river Blackwater. He's going to need a lot of hoovers to clean this one. And uh, loads of history around the area. But I'm always wondering how how these kind of uh, secret deals come to... Find, who's the source that eventually comes forward and says, do you know, do you know who's up there buying the house up, after, up yonder? What's his name now? His, it's Henry, is it? No, it's Henry. It's something to do with Hoover's. Somebody who, or is it a famous singer now? No, no. The, no, no he makes sewing machines. No, oh, jeez, I know. It's your man with the hair dryers. That's for that fellow with the hair dryers that cost the price of a night away. That's who it is. And then it comes down and someone does a bit of dig. <laughs> it's James. And it's, oh, it's James Dyson, apparently. Um, so this, at 30 million euro, the Blackwater River property is now the record Irish price set for a private house or estate. It would be at 30 million. It's greater than the 20 million paid by Stripe founder John Collison for the Abbey Leaks estate, which was 1,100 acres in 2022, and more than the billionaire John Malone, who's the biggest landowner in America. John Malone paid for Tony O'Reilly's Castle Martin estate and Stud Farm in Kildare, which was 29 million. So Ballinatray Trey has been sold by its owner, which was Henry Gwynne Jones who doubled the lands to 850 acres and he bought it 20 years ago for 11 million, so now trebled in its value. So James Dyson, he is um, his family fortune apparently is £20 million sterling. He owns extensive farms and estates in the Shires in Britain and he also has homes in London, France and Singapore and a 300-foot super yacht. So why not lash in another estate? And uh, as I say, loads of history and there's Walter Raleigh, of course, big in around Yahal. 
and uh, various Dukes of Devonshire, who owns Lismore Castle. In fact, um, I have his name here. Peregrine Cavendish. He's the 12th Duke of Devonshire. He owns Lismore Castle. Peregrine. Of course, you know your man up there who owns a castle in Lismore. I always wondered how they... Certain estates seem to have escaped the land acts which were designed to bankrupt some of the old inherited states from, from the ascendancy over here. But they'd survived um, all around the country. And there you go. James Dyson now is in there. Uh, Erica Cody's a brand ambassador for Dyson. We're watching videos this morning of her putting on the um, headphones. I have the, the mask thing. That was a bizarre kind of COVID-y thing. But he's a genius nonetheless, we say. <laughs> they can't be selling many of those mad mask headphone things. Genius billionaire, playboy philanthropist. Oh wait, that's Tony Stark. Genius billionaire Brexiteer, James Dyson. Also, I mean, I think Oliver meant to say that Dyson is worth £20 billion, not, you know, million, because otherwise, well, he might be a little short buying a house for €35 million. Assuming I've got my maths right, that is. Meanwhile, elsewhere in rural Ireland... The artist Annie West online, she discovered that in Cavan, there is a whole townland named after one of the country's finest journalists, Tony Connolly and the townland is literally called Tony Connolly all one word it's even spelled in the same way that he spells the unusual Connolly uh, as in you know it ends E-L-L-Y rather than O-L-L-Y so it appears uh, on the online maps as the townland of Tony Connolly in County Cavan an entire townland Um, the Tony Connolly townland I think Cavan County Council really should consider making Tony Connolly a free man free citizen of Tony Connolly and then he should also be the Grand Marshal of the St. Patrick's Day Tony Connolly Parade and uh, Tony Connolly should be the chair of the Tony Connolly Tidy Townland Committee. That, I think that's, that would be very very fitting. This is a real thing, by the way. Townlands.ie have a whole breakdown of it. It's in the electoral division of Drung in the civil parish of Lara in the barony of Tully Garvey in County Cavan. So there you go. And it is, um, it's a fair size. It's a quarter. It's a quarter of one square. Quarter of one square miles. So that's that's that's, that's big now for a townland in Cavan, Cara uh, uh, to the east. If you really want to get specific about it, we'll be holidaying in Tony Connolly this year. Can't wait. Now on to tales of celebs from a bygone era. Patty Boyd is in the news. Patty Boyd, you know, she's a model, an icon of swinging 60s London. She married George Harrison in 1966 after meeting him on the Hard Day's Night, the Beatles film. And uh, she claimed that he wrote something, uh, the Beatles ballad, about her, uh, though he denied that. Uh, and then, of course, they wrote music together. Sorry, George Harrison and Clapton wrote music together. And Eric Clapton then falls, of course, uh, madly in love with Patty Boyd and starts writing her letters. Which is a little bit awkward because um, Patty Boyd is married to George Harrison at the time and Clapton is dating Patty Boyd's sister, Paula, while also in a relationship with the aristocrat Alice Ormsby Gore. They had a great time in the 70s, these, these rich people and hanging out with... with, with you, you suppose you dated the people with the most names in the end. So if you had more names, you owned lots of things, just kept adding names. Ormsby Gore. Um, so there's a lot, there's interesting letters, Patty Boyd selling them. One of them was actually written on a, a, a title page torn from a copy of Of Mice and Men. As I say, it's the 70s and the rock and rollers. And Eric Clapton, he's writing to Patty Boyd, why do you hesitate, as in falling for me? He's talking about, uh, oh, I'll go to the start of this, because he says, what I wish to ask you is if you are still in love with your husband or have you another lover? All these questions are very important, I know, but there's still a feeling in your heart for me. You must let me know. This sounds like a... Someone from Sense and Sensibility. Why do you hesitate? Am I a poor lover? Am I ugly? Am I too weak, too strong? Do you know why? If you want me, take me. I am yours. 
very, very needy man. You can get this letter, each of the letters, a couple of letters, estimated to sell for between 10 and 15,000 pounds sterling each, plus the commission, because the auctioneers always win. He refers to Boyd, of course, as Layla in the letter, and in the year he reads, writes the letter, he wrote the classic rock song of the same name about her, and um, he played her a cassette recording of Layla. She says she was taken aback by its beauty, but at the same time, I felt guilt. I think Patty Boyd is the winner of that competition in the end, wasn't she? Very much. And she she opens a drawer and goes, oh, ten letters from that old dose now will make a few quid for us. I always suspected Eric Clapton was a dose. And now we know. But what about a more contemporary celeb story, you ask? Asked and answered. Oh, by the way, Ryan Gosling... There was a lot of talk about I Am Ken, I'm Just Ken, because it's nominated for the Oscars. It's written by Mark Ronson and Andrew Wyatt. Uh, but everyone said, oh, Ryan Gosling, he probably won't sing live now, I'd say, at the Oscars, because, um, well, he's not, very, he's not a terribly good singer, let's face it. And he's announced that, yes, he's going to sing, perform live at the upcoming 96th ceremony of the Academy Awards in uh, less than two weeks' time now. And uh, there's actually quite a lot of evidence of him. He, he, he got together with Mark Ronson before Christmas. They were doing a Christmas live edition of I'm Just Ken. And he's actually chatting with Mark Ronson about how they would do the thing live. This is before Christmas and he's on the piano himself. Ryan Gosling, that is. Mark, what if I kind of lean into this hey girl thing and I go like, hey girl, it doesn't seem to matter what I do. Well, then I, whatever, whatever we get, I lean into it and hit the guy. There he is, he leans into it, he talks about it. And, and can he perform it live? Well, we have a clip of the, the performance that comes out of that conversation. Pretty decent. That's decent. They'll do that on Oscars night as well. They'll drown, they'll drown it with an orchestra. Uh, so he's well, he's well able to sing. Of course, it's going to be different doing it in front of the other big singers, other people singing live, such as Billie Eilish, also nominated for Barbie, What Was I Made For, herself and Phineas. John Batiste, who also has an Oscar, It Never Went Away from American Symphony is the other nominated songs, along with Fire Inside from Flaming Hot and a song from my people from Killers of the Flower Moon. But either of the... Um, the Barbie songs are red-hot favourites for that one. Probably the only one it's going to, to win, let's face it. Ah, but what if the Barbie song vote is split between the two Barbie songs and then another song sneaks in over the line? What then, eh? Well, no best song Oscar for Barbie. That's what then, I guess. If it was up to me, and it isn't, I can't stress that enough, I'd give the gong to the Billie Eilish song. But what do I know? Anyway, that'll do us for the morning musings from Oliver Callan for today. Next... clean are your shoes? Take a look. I'll wait. The thing is, they probably look clean enough, but what's on them that you can't see? This morning, Claire Byrne spoke to Dr Primrose Freestone, senior lecturer in clinical microbiology at the University of Leicester, and a woman who, we learned from the last time she was on the show, practically dons a forensic pathology crime scene suit when she has to stay in a hotel. Claire asked Primrose if shoes were removed before coming in the front door in her house. In my home, um, we are very... Well, I'm a microbiologist. I'm probably more careful than most. But um, I have to say, um, we wipe our feet at the front door. We've got two mats and we've got um, sort of, you know, um, shoe cleaning mats actually on the walk down the hallway into the living rooms. 
So we keep our shoes on, but we do wipe them. And mm-hmm. we are very, the one time we would take them off, and even at the door, is if we trod in some dog. <laughs> yeah, which is the worst, isn't it? Because it's almost impossible to remove it. It's not impossible to remove it, but it is quite challenging and it's a very unpleasant thing to do. But that's the main reason that we take our shoes off. Otherwise, um, carpets and floors do get mopped and and cleaned every day. Every single day. I'm a microbiologist. Yes. Yes. Well, look, we're taking that into account. Do you think there's any point in removing your shoes at the front door? Because if, if one person doesn't do it, is there any point in anyone doing it? Um, what you have on the basis of your shoes is whatever your feet came into when you were walking around outside, in houses, in cars and so on. Um, so um, the more people that come into your house with shoes, the more obviously you're going to have to deposit, you know, dirt and so on, which is the reason why you actually clean your floors and the vacuum your carpets. However, um, if you have throughout your life been taking your shoes off um, to protect your carpets, fine, carry on doing it. If you keep your shoes on, fine doing that as well. If in those practices you stay healthy, then there's no reason why, because hy- it suggests that this hygiene level will be fine for you, that you should change this. But mm-hmm. there may come times in your life when hygiene actually becomes more of a priority. You develop an illness, you're on chemotherapy, then you might actually want to think about leaving your shoes at the front door. Okay. And give them a wipe. Well, will we go inside the shoe now and see what's going on there? <laughs> <laughs> With the, the socks I'm and the... Sp- at that is, I've actually done some analysis of this and what lives inside your shoe is whatever was on your feet is whatever was on your socks. And if you wander around the house, okay, in your socks, then whatever attaches to your socks um, ends up in your shoes. And for the record, yes, we did for... One of our local radio stations analysed how many bacteria there were in a supposedly clean pair of socks. And it was about 150,000 bacteria per sock. Wow. That's when they've been worn, right? No, it's after they've been washed. No. Yes, They're indeed. still living the there. That, <laughs> well, the, that we think is part of the natural ecology of what lives on your feet, that what ends up in your socks. And whatever is on your socks depends on what's in your house, what's on the floor. If you've got pets and so on, there'll be pet hairs and, and the bacteria from your pets actually into, into your socks. And of course, these then end up inside your shoes. Mm-hmm. So should you clean the interior of your shoes? Well, it's recommended that you do so every three to six weeks using some sort of antibacterial alcohol, 70%. Um, alcohol um, will actually do it really quite well. And why do you need to do that? Um, to keep the levels of bacteria and fungi down, to avoid um, sort of um, you know toe infections, such as that by athletes' foot, tinea pedis. Okay, so we're not actually saying sanitise everything. What we're saying is keep the levels of bacteria down. And also, your shoes are going to smell nicer. Mm-hmm, and so will your feet, for that matter. And when it comes to people who play a lot of sport or maybe go for a run, the, the runners might be a bit damp afterwards for a couple of reasons, because they might be running in the rain uh, and what's mm-hmm. happening with the, the foot that's heating up inside. Are, they, are you supposed to dry those out thoroughly before you put them on your foot again? It would help if you did. Okay, because microorganisms, fungi especially, athletes' foot fungus, loves it when it's wet. Um, and when it's actually warm, which is what happens inside a shoe. 
and especially between your toes. Nice. Um, and what about machine washing your trainers? Is that something that you recommend? Um, if the trainers are actually robust enough to actually survive that, it's not a bad thing to actually sort of do. However, um, keeping on doing that, I'm afraid they're eventually going to sort of disintegrate. Yeah. So wiping the interior and making sure the exterior is clean just because it looks better that way is probably enough. Okay, Remember, but... we, we as humans, we've evolved to live in quite dirty environments, quite frankly. Right. And our immune systems, usually, okay, when we're in good health, um, are enough to cope with any kind of challenge that we actually impose it from. Mm-hmm. She was a little bit on the smelly side. <laughs> I'm as well. I'm remembering as well the washed sock that has 150,000 bacteria living on it. So I'm not sure about the washing in the machine for the trainers is a good well, idea on actually, any level. We hand washed it at 40 degrees using biological washing powder, and we counted in the water how many bacteria came out. The way, the way that we did actually. And sort of sanitise the sock was ironing it. That really got the bacteria and funky down to a level where we couldn't count them anymore. I'm so not. I'm not ironing really my socks. Want... No, I'm not. I'm not. I can't. I can't go there. However, if you've got <laughs> athlete's foot, my advice is iron your socks. Okay, <laughs> just to kill everything off. Okay, let's get really down and dirty now. What causes the sweaty foot smell, Primrose? Okay, naturally you have living between your toes and on the exterior of your body, bacteria and fungi. Okay, now between your toes it's warm and there will be a lot of perspiration, sweating. Now sweat has got sort of um, nutrients in it, amino acids and so on, that bacteria can eat and the smelliness between your toes, if you don't wash your feet regularly and you reuse your trainers um, on a regular basis, you know, so-called cheesy feet, it's caused by bacteria living on the nutrients in your sweat. Mm, Hence okay. the reason that you should wash your feet and change your socks every day. Every day. I mean, most people change their socks every day, right? And if not, you're running the risk of all of these horrible things like fungal infections, athlete's foot meeting you a little quicker than they might if you were changing your, them every day. Absolutely, because um, changing your socks every day, washing your feet reduces the number of bacteria and fungi present. It doesn't get rid of them, and really you don't want them to because they're there to protect you, to help evolve your immune system. But at the same time, keeping the levels down will help to protect you from Mm -hmm. any kind of foot infections. And having sore feet is miserable. Yeah, and I'm just wondering whether a quick shower is enough. You know, are people paying enough attention to the feet? Make sure you wash between your toes with soap. You really do need that. Water is not enough. Wash your feet. Doctor's orders. That's Dr Primrose Freestone, Senior Lecturer in Clinical Microbiology at the University of Leicester, talking foot and shoe hygiene with Claire Byrne this morning. Paul Ryan spoke to Colm O'Mungon, sitting in for Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line, about a trip he took to Manchester with his daughter to watch Manchester United versus Fulham last weekend. Unfortunately, things did not end up going according to plan for Paul or his daughter. My wife bought us, my, both myself and my daughter share the same birthday over Christmas time. So we're big Manchester United fans and she surprised us with a trip on the 24th of February, 23rd of February to the Fulham game, which was just last Saturday. And we set off on Friday afternoon, myself and my daughter, and everything was going great. We, we had a lovely hotel. We ate, we ate in there. Uh, 
the restaurant owned by Gary Neville on the Friday night. We breakfast Saturday morning, and after Saturday morning, we headed to the ground, and we I, we bought some stuff in the mega store. We went to one of the local pubs to get the atmosphere going, and we went down to the ground to scan our two tickets, and when my daughter scanned her first ticket, it didn't scan. And how did your ticket go? My ticket scanned. So you, the other one didn't. So they, 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 the steward pointed it over to the ticket office, and we went over to the ticket office, and the, the girl at the ticket office said, uh, unfortunately, we've been victims of ticket fraud. Um, and, and had you been over to Manchester before? We've been there. The last time we were there was three years ago, just four years ago, just before lockdown. Um, we've been getting our tickets off the same person. Um, and for some reason, this time, my daughter Layla, her ticket didn't go through. Um, like the what, only thing I can is there any is difference is, in the format of the tickets? So like three years ago, you went over, were you talking well, about pay? Well, it was a QR pay, code. Pay? It was a QR now. It was a QR code we got this time. This on, time on the phone. And the first time you yeah. went, was it paper tickets or barcodes? It or was what? card. It was card tickets. It was like a Visa card. All right. Ticket. So you, you had a physical plastic ticket to go That's in, did you? a physical plastic ticket. All the right. only thing I can think of is if, if Layla's ticket got hacked or the same seller sold the other ticket, said the same ticket to someone else and they scanned before Layla arrived to the ground and... Unfortunately, column she we didn't get that far. That's as far as we got was the turnstile, and we turned and went home. I asked the, the girl in the ticket office, "Could I purchase two tickets?" Because obviously my daughter was gutted, and she said, "I'm very sorry. There's no no tickets remaining." And I I just asked as a I suppose it was a gesture of goodwill. Question: Is there anything you can do? Could you can you just let us into the ground? We've got one valid ticket. You, you can see, you know, we're genuine. We just have to be. If sure. you can pardon the phrase, we have to be done. And she said, "Unfortunately, I can't do that." Right, and she was—was was she sympathetic? She was sympathetic, yeah. But she, she just said we're trying to, the club are trying to erase ticket fraud. And I said, well, I understand that. I said, but the club also sells season tickets, numerous amount of season tickets to one single individual all the time. And if a, a single individual has five season tickets, they can only use one of them. So they're obviously passing them on to other people who are giving them back to them at the end of the game, and they've been used for another game and. This time just didn't make sense until after it, when I realised it was a QR code. Right. I'm not one for technology. Technology is, there's too much hacking going on at the moment in the world, and I think we were probably hacked. Right. Our tickets somehow I mean, got hacked. And it, it could be the case that maybe somebody, you know, you share a ticket, uh, They, as you say, somebody could have multiple season tickets. They might have, you know, put it, how, how were you sent, were you emailed the tickets, or was it we kind were, of shared I was sent, via... I was sent uh, through it, I was sent by WhatsApp. Right, and might they have sent might might they have sent the same person two tickets inadvertently, having having meant to send another usable one? I mean, did you get back in contact with the source of the tickets from the ground? I got back in contact ground? with the person. No, I got back in contact with the person, and I was told by that person that unfortunately his name or my name are not on the ticket. So even if he went to the ticket office, there's nothing he could have done. And um, I... unfortunately, my wife bought the ticket, so um, it was no fault of her own. It was no fault of anyone's column. We were just. We were just victims of a fraud ticket, and and unfortunately, Layla's 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 trip didn't go according to plan. Right at the end. Right, and had did the, uh, did the person at the ground say they you know this is something they see regularly? I mean, were there other people in the same predicament as you uh, as well, no, you I, at the ground? Well, just in just in hearsay since I come home, you know, I've I've been hearing off other people. You know, a lot more of this is happening because of the QR code system. Because some people are probably able to hack these things, and maybe they're maybe they're getting a copy of the ticket I had and forwarded it on to someone else who thinks it's their ticket and as I said they probably just scanned it be- before we did if it was one minute before we did they were already in the ground because the girl said to my daughter that ticket's already been scanned 
Right. And when you say, I mean, I I, I don't know whether sort of you, you had the ins and outs of it explained to you, uh, Paul, but I mean, when you say hacking, are you talking about somebody intercepting emails that it would that it was sent on because Probably, I mean possibly along those lines yeah right because I mean obviously you know WhatsApp is one of those they say it's end to end encrypted so you know yeah, it's it's yeah. Pre- supposed to be secure messaging at, so yeah. so it can't be intercepted so I mean it 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 it, uh, it may have gone awry somewhere before it was even sent to you did it probably I probably I just I call them we genuinely don't know except all we know is her ticket didn't scan and the, the clubs, the, the people at the, the stewards at the Tornsoil, you can understand they're only doing their jobs. They just said, we can't let you in on a ticket that's already been scanned. Sure. Because obviously the sea was taken. And did you get a chance to talk to the person uh, that, that supplied you with the tickets? I mean, you say you had no no issues prior to that, but I mean, did you No actually... issues at all with this person prior to the ticket. Absolutely yeah. none. Uh, absolutely would, none. Would you go to them again? No, absolutely not. The next time I go to Old Trafford, it'll be a physical ticket in my hand. And were they because apologetic about it? No, absolutely not, no. They no. just said, unfortunately, his name or my name is not on that ticket. There's nothing we can do about it. Well, did he offer you and a refund? Nothing, because we've no receipt. You know, if, if we're guilty, if my, you know, unfortunately, my wife just purchased him the way she always did. It, it, yeah. Nobody's guilty of anything. We're just a victim of, of unfortunately, right. ticket fraud. And it, look, with, with, without, without giving, you know, without... Um, without giving, I suppose, away anybody's identity, how do people go about buying these tickets? You know, well, if somebody, if somebody I, is... I would a... recommend now, I would recommend now, I've done it before, it's quite a good trip. If you go to, go to these tour operators, it's a good trip. Most of them, you, you go by coach on the ferry and they, they, coach, they drive you down to the ground and you stay in a hotel overnight and they actually give you a physical ticket going into the ground. Take them learnings from a man who's been burned. That's Paul talking to Colm O'Mungon about his unsuccessful effort to see Manchester United play Fulham with his daughter. I suppose the only consolation is that the home team lost and Paul and his daughter were spared having to watch the crushing disappointment that is Manchester United in 2024. Here's a rather startling stat from this morning's Oliver Callum. On any given day, around 60,000 children do not show up for school. Wow. And apparently the number of children refusing to go to school has doubled since lockdown. Oliver spoke to Kerry, the parent of a child who one day decided he wasn't going to be able to go to school. He um, had a normal primary school experience. He went to a really lovely small primary school out near us Mm -hmm. and he was happy, he was confident, he was social. He really loved primary school. And then I suppose the pandemic hit the whole of Ireland in fifth class, of his time in fifth class. And the schools around the country closed their doors. So he missed a lot of fifth and sixth. So the I, end of primary school. The end entirely. of primary school. The really formative end of primary school. So I feel that played a big part in in him not being able to transfer to secondary school. So he started in secondary school in September 2021. Right. So we were still in the midst of the pandemic. It was kind of opening, shutting. It was opening and shutting. Rows and rules. Yes, kids were yeah. kept in. Kids were allowed out. Um, so when he started in his secondary school, he'd never been in the school building before. So there was no inductions. There was nothing, you know, to, to prepare them. Um, and they were all wearing masks and they were all in pods. So mm-hmm. they were actively not encouraged to socialise. So despite all of that, he really loved secondary school. He really? joined clubs, he joined sports, he made friends and he seemed to be doing really, really well. 
And then in the January of first year, so the second term, he just after Christmas, he started to show a little bit of reluctance to go to school. There was a couple of issues with friendships um, and he started complaining of pains in his tummy. Um, and he had his first panic attack in the second week in January. He'd never, ever had anxiety before. He never showed any signs of any, you know, worries or anything like that. He he had a fight flight response in the car park in school. Is that, that's where the panic attack happens the in the car park. Did you attack. witness that? Yes. That must be pretty scary. It was really, it was really scary because on the surface it looked like something very, very serious had happened because it was a real fight or flight response. He basically curled up into a ball in the footwell of the car and said, screamed, get me out of here. So uh, obviously myself and my husband's initial response was to try and find out what happened. Yeah. And so we began the journey through the GP we went, we got a referral for CAMS. We... The mental health services for young the people. The mental health services. We really thought something had happened. In the meantime, we were trying to get him into school. So this was going on for five, six months. We would get up. We would try to get him into school. He would go into fight or flight. There was no getting him out of the car. There were Teachers would come out to the car. They would reassure him. Wow. We, so he would, you could get him out of bed, dressed. He wanted to go. He really wanted okay. to go. He he wants an education, and he would spe- He would talk himself round every morning. He'd be like, "You've got this. I'm gonna be okay. I know I'm safe." But we would get to the building, and his body would just take over. So we tried lots of different therapies. We tried hypnotherapy because he was 13 at the time. So what? we. You know, we didn't want to do so much talk therapy, although we did do a course of CBT, which is talk therapy. Mm -hmm. Cognitive behavioural therapy. And I presume you would have been at this stage thinking it's the issues with friendships you mentioned, that maybe something has happened in the school, bullying or so on, or just isolation. Yeah, my gut all along was that it was not one particular thing, that it was a mix of a lot of things. It was a mix of transferring to secondary school when he clearly hadn't you know been prepared um friendships were were tricky um he was very um he was a joker so he was giddy yeah and so he wasn't always focused although really really bright he you know he would be the joker too he's good <laughs> so he's the showman in the classroom showman yeah very popular just, all just came to a halt all just came to a crashing halt he changed overnight. He absolutely changed overnight. And I was so frustrated because we could see that he had changed. A, a switch went off and nobody seemed to be able to tell us why. So we did, as I say, we did some amazing therapy with him. Yeah. Um, but nothing, nothing huge came out of the therapy. And so he would... He would learn techniques, breathing techniques. He would read self-help books. He would journal. It so would, he was looking for solutions he himself. He was so great at looking for What are for the conversations solutions. like when you ask him, why can't you go to school? Or I, He would just say to me, Mum, I don't know. Let's try. Let's go. And we would get there and his body would take over. And the panic attacks sometimes would go on for hours. It was like he went to some other place. 
at times, mm -hmm. not all the time, but they would go on for hours. And then I would question him afterwards and he would say, I don't remember. He just knew that if he got out of the car, he felt unsafe. And he wouldn't remember the episode? Not always. He wouldn't remember... You know, if teachers came out to the car in, in the height of it, he wouldn't remember those conversations. He just was fighting for his life. He had to get it out wow. of the car park. Presumably after missing, I think it's 20 days of school, that, that it becomes an issue then, doesn't it? The they school generally that. gets in touch with the authorities. They say that, yeah. What happens in your case? Um, no one came looking. No one came looking. So After the 20 days? And so no. On. Okay. I mean, I was in touch with the school because I would come up with ideas and I would suggest it to them and, and ask them for support in the mornings. So I suppose I was touching base. There was periods where I where we kept him home because obviously his mental health was starting to suffer. Yeah. Um, Be it's because of he just had no reason that he couldn't go to school. Is that he the... had no reason other that his body was telling him he was unsafe. That's as clear as I can say it. That's as clear as he can say it today. Yeah. Something was telling him he had to get out of there. So I would I would touch base with the school. But there was periods where, long periods where he didn't present in school and no one came looking. Okay. Um, because I think the procedure is the school is supposed to contact Tuzla. Isn't that the idea? That's correct. And say there's a problem here. There's a kid not, not coming to school. But maybe you had already been in touch with the school. Is that an explanation? Um, um, I think they're so overwhelmed that oh, right. they didn't get to it. So did you have any interaction with Tuzla at all in the end? I did at the end of the road. So so how long was he out of school before? So he was out of school. We moved him uh, in second year. We, we decided to do a clean slate. We worked okay. on him all summer. He worked on himself. He was in a good place. He went, we, we moved him to a smaller uh, secondary school near us. Yeah. He made the he made the choice. He had an interview and he loved it. And he went in the first day and he loved it. He went in the second day and he thought to himself, what if I have a panic attack in here? Right. And that was it. And it triggered again. And that was it. He was gone again. That's hard. That is hard. Kerry, a parent of a teenager who can't go to school, talking to Oliver Callum this morning. Metrolink is coming. How often have we heard that over the last, oh, I don't know, 30 years? Also coming is the Shannon Pipeline. Two huge engineering projects which, if they actually happen, will impact the locations they're being built on hugely. This morning, Claire Byrne spoke about these projects to Caroline O'Doherty, environment correspondent with the Irish Independent. I want to start with the Metro. The public hearings in the Gresham Hotel in Dublin yesterday was told about the works around St Stephen's Green, that it will lead to the partial demolition of a national monument, which is what the Green is. The permanent removal of 60 mature trees. I mean, that's something that's going to rankle with historians, with some environmentalists and quite possibly the general public. Yeah, I mean, partial demolition sounds quite dramatic, but it's actually the terminology that was used by both sides in the discussion yesterday. And both sides are the TII, Transport Infrastructure Ireland, who are tasked with getting this project uh, up and running, if, if ever that happens, uh, getting it through the development stages. And the Office of Public Works, which is the, the other state agency, which is responsible for all our national monuments and our historic buildings. And they're saying they have a responsibility way back in, under several different pieces of legislation, but the first one going back to 1877, 
Cavan uh, to protect Stephen's Green, St Stephen's Green as a public park, as an ornamental park and as a, a park for leisure and culture purposes. So really not for practical purposes. Um, so they're saying that that's their, their statutory obliged to do that and they have to therefore raise concerns, stroke objections to this proposal to put a station, a metro station on the corner, one corner of the park and also the tunnel that goes under it. But primarily what would be visible and what would actually intrude on the existing park is the, is the station that would kind of house the entrance to the underground sta- um, uh, platforms and the escalators and so on. Mm-hmm. And are there any other options that on board Panola will hear at the public hearings or is this it because of the route that the metro has to take and the stops that it needs to make to make the whole thing viable to bring it right into the city centre. Well, Stephen's Green was, was part of the original Metrolink plan, which was you know, approved back in, in 2010. Um, and obviously it was shelved then for economic reasons. So the route has changed slightly since then. But Stephen's Green was always a central point because this, this the route is going from um, North Dublin to just south of the city centre, right through the city centre. And you know, Stephen's Green is the city centre. Mm-hmm. So... So it's the northeast corner. Um, so if you can think, kind of think of where people might be familiar with an entrance that, and here's an issue, it ha- that you're not supposed to tamper with the park or its historic railings or its lamp standards or its bollards or its pavements or its trees or any of that. But there, it was tampered with, if you like, if you want to use that language, in the 1960s because they took out at the northeast corner, they took down some of the railings and they put in a monument to a wolf tone. Um, and that monument there, it's a very large brown statue and there's kind of a, a, a granite backdrop to it, this kind of dramatic, they, it kind of looks a little bit like cliffs that's put in there and they also put in the family memorial there. So that was all completed in 1967. So there is an argument that, you know, and it will be that corner that the that, um, uh, Metrolink is going back to, if you like, for this proposal. So they're proposing to take all those monuments and, and, and sculptures and move them further back into the park which would free up that kind of corner space to put in the escalators and the station. Um, and they say, we'll take out railings, but we'll put them back. Now, it won't be exact same position. We'll take out, anything we take out, we will put back. Uh, but obviously it will need more what they call hard landscaping, which is kind of modern paving around the station. And they will have to cut down about 60, I think it's about 64, 65 trees, mature trees, um, which are, you know, such a, I suppose, a feature of the park. They're all mature, deciduous trees. Um, they're part of our sort of, uh, I suppose, natural heritage there and that's a problem because that's permanent removal you can't put them back you yeah. can replace them but not, not mature trees And was there any sense at the hearing that compromise might be reached on this involving the, the Office of Public Works because you're, I know you're going to be hearing from homeowners there too who are going to face huge disruption personal consequences of this and you know if they concede you would imagine that the OPW will have to give some way too well, the OPW is saying, they're only quoting the law that they say they have to operate under. Now, there are 31 other uh, monuments and buildings, you know, Leinster House, um, the GPO, um, the National Gallery, they're all under the responsibility of the OPW. And they said they've managed to reach agreement with Transport Infrastructure Ireland on how to mitigate any impacts on those. Um, so if there's building around them, that they can be assured that anything that has to, might have to be removed temporarily will be restored exactly as it was. So they've said they've managed to reach agreement on all those 31 other monuments and buildings but not Stephen's Green. So it's, what they're kind of doing is putting it up to the planners to say, 
can you maybe come up with a solution on this? Now, that's not to say, like, there's, there's weeks to go of this hearing and there'll be other you know, negotiations behind the scenes as well while um, Ambar Planola is, is, um, is considering all the documents and all the submissions. So they will be in discussion and they will be trying to reach agreement. But there is this issue that the OPW is saying, well, that's the law, that's the law under which we operate and we're supposed to defend, if you like, the, the, the original purpose mm-hmm. and, and character of, the, of Stevens Green. Okay, well, so what can we do? Right, well, well, it remains to be seen. Um, let's move then to the other project that I mentioned, the Shannon Pipeline. You're writing about this as well. This is another huge project. 1.5 billion euro is the cost on it. And there are warnings from Ishka Aaron now that connections to new developments might have to be refused as early as next year so that the Shannon Pipeline can go ahead. So, I mean, people are, are waiting for this for years and years, but there are hurdles in the way. There are, and again, this one goes back a long time. It was first kind of suggested in the in the 1990s as a possible solution because it was clear that Dublin was going to grow, and it has done, and it was clear that the River Liffey, on which Dublin relies for 85% of its water, is under strain, which it is, and increasingly so. Um, so as a, a proposal was put out way back then, couldn't we pipe water from the Shannon? And I think at, at that time it was kind of greeted with, you know, a bit of ridicule because it seemed bizarre that you couldn't sort out your water problems for the east of the country in the east of the country. Um, and also it seemed like technologically very difficult. Irish Water, now Irish Garen, uh, will say, well, it's not a technically difficult project because we, we, we're, we're well able to extract water from water sources. It's quite a simple pipeline and it's a water treatment plant, you know, mm-hmm. quite simple. And then you connect it up with the rest of Dublin. But the bigger issue is um, you are taking, you'll be proposing to take 300 million litres of water a day from the River Shannon. Um, and there's a lot of concern right around the Shannon. You're also going to run that through the land of about 500 farmers and other landowners. And so there's a lot of negotiation to go on there and agreements to be reached. And there's just a question mark um, about, you know, what do we really know what the impacts of that amount of water extraction would be on the River Liffey and its habitats, its fisheries and all of that. And there's this really, there's a real bugbear here with a lot of people who are opposed to this um, project is that a lot of that water will actually disappear in leaks once it gets to Dublin. Uh, We still have this leakage problem. We have very old pipe work in Dublin and in other cities in the country. And at the minute, about a third of the water that is treated and leaves the water treatment plant, so it's expensively uh, sourced and treated, then disappears into leaks. Um, and Irish Water will argue that we're working on the leaks and have done, you know, we've made, a, we've made great inroads in that, and they, have the, they say they'll uh, get the leaks in Dublin down to about 20% of lost, you know, 20% of all the water will be lost by the end of this decade. Extraordinary. So we'll only lose 20% of our treated water to leaks by 2030? Whoa, efficiency in action, eh? <clears throat> That's Irish Independent Environment Correspondent Caroline O'Doherty talking to Claire Byrne this morning. Humans of Dublin, photographer Peter Vargas' project, inspired by Humans of New York, that documents the lives of ordinary people in the city, is 10 years old. Peter joined Ray Darcy in studio this afternoon to talk about a decade of photographing the denizens of Dublin. So for people who don't know about it, tell us the whole the whole history of it. Okay, so the whole concept came about because I was starting a photography course and I was afraid to go there empty-handed. And I was looking for small projects before the course starts, so I, I don't need to go there empty-handed. And around the same time, my at the time my girlfriend, who is now my wife, introduced me to Humans of New York. And it was exactly the two things that I was doing anyway. I was working in a coffee shop and I had this challenge for myself of... Because I was bored, I was 
had this challenge for myself of skipping small talks, skipping uh, small talks and ask meaningful questions from the customers. And also photography together when she introduced me to Humans of New York. This was the two things together that I started before the course. So tell people who wouldn't know about Humans of New York. Yeah, so the Humans of New York is a collection of portraits and short stories from the streets of New York. This photographer was going around the streets of New York and asked random people to take their portraits. Originally, the project was supposed to just feature portraits of New York, but then he got to start chatting to them and really interesting stories and personal, really deep stories blossomed Uh out from that. So the story of their lives... Uh, was attached to their picture. And exactly. It, be- it became a thing. Yes. Uh, and you, well, Maria saw that and she said, yeah. you should be doing that. I- yeah. I'm intrigued by the fact that you were working in a coffee shop yeah. and you decided in your head to skip the boring small talk and get straight to the big questions. What sort of big questions were you asking? It, it was really depending on what customer were coming in and what kind of... So the idea is of skipping small talks. You can pick it up from where, wherever you want from there. Like whenever you come in... Like I had a photographer friend uh, who became my mentor. He was a regular customer in there and we just started to chat about photography or there was people coming in and they were talking about their work. I would I would get to know them just by skipping the small talk and yes. instead of asking what coffee they want, I get to know them and because of that they became regular customers. Now at that time I was already like... I loved working in a coffee shop. I was a, uh, I did uh, latte art championships and I was, I'm still really into coffee but I always knew that this is not for you as a, as a yeah. career, yes. Yeah, so I, I was already looking for ways of getting out from there. And the photography course was just my way of kind of getting out from there. Yeah. How many people have you interviewed for Humans of Dublin in the last 10 years? Um, over 2,500 people. So it's, it's quite a lot. Yeah. yeah. It's like I, I used to go out every single day with a goal of approaching 10 people on the streets. And I did that for well, nearly 10 years now, but the pandemic slowed down everything a little bit. And I started to work with different companies and organizations to raise awareness through real life stories. And uh, that, because of that, I had lots of targeted interviews. So uh. organizations would uh, highlight people for me to interview in specific topics. And I would I would have the free ticket or actually get paid to interview okay. interesting people. But apart from that, I suppose in its, in its, in its raw form, Humans of Dublin was you approaching people in the street. Yeah, I used to do that for years, yes. And asking about asking them about intimate details of their life. Yes. It's easier than you would think. Yeah. People people always ask me, "Oh, how many people turn you down?" And it just doesn't happen. And I'm not sure if because of the people of Dublin are more open or because like it has to do with the energy that you approach you when you when you have a bad mood, you don't approach people on the streets. But it's it's really part of it that what I realized is you, if people can sense that you are truly interested about their story, they will open up. And also that you, you shouldn't go there with a list, a list of questions. So I had to develop over the years this technique of basing your next question on their answers so you can go really deep in a conversation. And that's really important, yes. I think, to, to get the story. Because you have to be listening. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. And that's the thing as well. Like I, I have this thing that whenever I'm in a in a party or or in a in a specific even like when I go to a different country i I like to uh, take my time to get to know the taxi driver or get to know or I just don't cut my hair before I go to travel. I go to a barber and I start asking questions from the barber in that specific country uh-huh. about their lives and about what is it like to live in here, about specific ideas that they have for me to check out. Lots of the times people think that this is the most important is for you to 
be the center of attention. But what I realized, if you just remove your ego and you remove yourself from the whole um, like center of attention and you get you just ask questions, you get mm. to learn so much. And people usually remember you with the way you made them feel. Yes. If you ask people about their lives, you make them feel important. And that's the feeling yeah. that they're going to walk away from. Was there a moment when Humans of Dublin became a thing in that more and more people knew about it? Did it yeah. go viral at any stage? Yeah. yeah. And the viral meant really different back then. Like we talk about 10 years. Yes. Now you open social media, you only see viral videos. You just scroll through viral videos. But 10 years ago, it was really difficult to go viral. And I still remember, like I was still, like I invested every effort into Humans of Dublin. I was still on social welfare and I was going out every single day uh, and I still remember I was getting comments like, oh, we really uh, appreciate your enthusiasm. This project is amazing, but you should consider having uh, uh, someone proofread your stories. Because obviously, like, I'm not from here, from Ireland. You You're know? from Hungary. Yeah. Yes. And so English wasn't your first language. Yes. Yes. Okay. And sorry, what, what we were um Yeah. So, uh, so there was one particular story that... that yeah. So after about nine months of working on the street, one of my first stories went viral. And uh, like it was a huge media attention from all over the world, not only from Ireland. I had millions of views and thousands of likes. And um, I think you may have interviewed Jimmy Harrington. Yes, we did. Yes, he, uh, that he was one of the. Yeah, he he intervened when somebody was considering taking their own life on Hapney Bridge. Wasn't that the story? This is beautiful because it comes in a, into a few, full circle. Because I'm doing the same. Like sometimes that's all you need to do. You just ask a question: Are you okay? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's what he did. He he just started the conversation. He he saw that that person is really in dis- distress. People were yeah. running by him. Everyone was running by him, and he just noticed it. Did you ever interview yourself? <laughs> have you done the, Have you done the Humans of Dublin on on Peter on you? I suppose I should. I yeah. featured myself by proposing to my wife. On, Go on in Tell the us. book. Yeah. When I, I got the opportunity, so yeah, yeah, everyone needs to know that the reason that I'm here today is because of my wife, because of my Maria. She already, when we met, she already had an MBA in psychology. And I, I suppose I was her uh, mouse to test <laughs> <laughs> what she, she's able to do with her studies. But um, I really wanted to say thank you to her for all the the support that she was she was pushing me forward. And uh, I had this deal with the, with the publishing company of putting the last page where I'm going to hold up a, um, a board that is saying, will you marry me, on a specific spot in Dalky. And when the first copy of the book came out, I took her to that specific spot and I asked her to open the, f- the last page of the first book. And I just went down to one knee. Ah, <laughs> uh, you old romantic. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to beat that one, isn't it? I lost a couple of friends and, over it. And that was published. That was published. So it was in. It, it in was in book. like fifty thousand books. Wow. Like uh, the last page is is me proposing to my wife. So yes. that's my story is Th- really that, there. Yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't a mock up. It wasn't something you did on Canva. This was published fifty thousand. Yeah. yeah, and then I had and to have she, this. She secret. said yes, obviously. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thankfully, yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, since then, we have a daughter as well now, uh, and we live together. Like um, we are married as well. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'm I'm very lucky with her. Yeah. So so your story is you're in Ireland for 16 years. You came from Hungary. Yeah. Uh, and was it always your intention to stay here? No, not at all. Um, my mother only let me go because I told her that this is going to be three months. So I'm going to learn a little bit English and after I come back. So that was 16 years ago. And now she lives here with us. That's photographer Peter Varga talking about his Humans of Dublin project 
and his mother, on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show. You can see some of Peter's work on his website, thehumansofdublin.ie, which has the rather marvellous tagline, I shoot people and then I ask questions. I like it. Regular today with Claire Byrne guest, GP Dr Maura Finn, was on hand this morning to talk to Claire about travel health and vaccinations. But how far ahead should you be thinking about this? Well, if you have specific health concerns, as in you have an underlying illness, obviously you should be kind of in contact with your doctor on an ongoing basis. And if you're travelling anywhere, be it to Dublin, to London, you know, regardless of any kind of like travel um, vaccinations or anything are needed always make sure you have up to date prescriptions you have uh, what you need with you and if you're unwell that you'd seek advice while you're away but generally what we're kind of you know talking about is is if you're going to somewhere that actually needs uh, you need more than your normal routine medical um, care and that would be places that would actually need travel vaccinations or places where you're going to that maybe you would be exposed to maybe water that mightn't be so sanitary maybe Maybe the food might be a little bit questionable in some places or you've been exposed to mosquitoes, which is probably the biggest threat in most places when you're where you're traveling um, to kind of more temperate climates. So you would recommend getting in touch how far before that trip? At least eight weeks, actually. It sounds like a long time, but you, you really should, because if there's travel vaccinations needed, Sometimes there's more than one that's needed. You need to be kind of given advice about what is needed. There's a cost implication and you may need time to kind of manage that. Um, so we usually say eight weeks before. Now, if you if, if it's a, a, a trip that kind of has come up unexpectedly, you should tra- go into your, your GP or travel vaccination centre anyway and see what's needed because mo- malaria prophylaxis, for instance, can be given... Um, you know, you, you, some of them you can start them only a day or two in advance of a trip. Some of them you need about a week before the trip. But, you know, the vaccines are very, very important in some places. And there are certain areas that you go to that it's mandatory. It's a legal requirement that you have certain vaccinations before you can enter the country. So you may actually find that you're on in an airport about to board a plane and you just can't go. So it's really important that you do a lot of research around this before you go and try to attend your GP at least eight weeks in advance. Now, even if you're not travelling very fast, our mosquitoes can plague some people and mm. then in other cases they can be an extremely dangerous threat. So what do people need to do? Well, in every situation, I mean, what you should do is try and protect yourself against being bitten in the first place. So that, that's easier said than done, of course. You know, we, we, you know, some people are very vulnerable to being bitten um, and, you know, wearing long sleeves, long trousers, um, especially at dawn and dusk are really important and at night time. Um, make sure you're covered as much as you possibly can using an insect repellent. In certain areas, you, there's mosquito nets that you would sleep under or insect repellent nets as well. Um, and if you're going to an area where diseases like malaria, dengue, um, some of these mosquito, mosquito-borne diseases, Zika virus, people will remember that was a big thing a few years ago, um, make sure that you use prophylaxis um, for those specific illnesses or be very, very careful around the advice that you'd be taking around those specific illnesses afterwards. Um, malaria prophylaxis. Thankfully, there is an, an, a malaria vaccine, but it's not widely available. It's, it is being brought into kind of countries where malaria is endemic, thankfully. Um, but it, we still use malaria oral prophylaxis most commonly. Um, but And it changes depending on the area you go to. And some areas are very 
resistant to um, some forms of the malaria prophylaxis. So it, that advice changes constantly. So it's something that you need to, even if you had one thing several years ago when you went to South Africa, if you're going to Southeast Asia this time, it may be completely different advice you'll need. Mm-hmm. So that's very important that you, ch- you check out where you're going, what's the purpose of your trip, what sort of um, activities you're going to be doing on the trip. All of these things matter when it comes to how you manage yourself when you're abroad. OK, we're going to get to questions in a moment. But in terms of avoiding being bitten, there's not much else you can do apart from the long sleeve trousers and the shirts and the insect repellent, which are effective sometimes, I would say. Mm, yeah, I know. I, I, I don't know. I'm I, I'm very vulnerable to them. They love me. <laughs> so I, I don't I'm the same. <laughs> like it's just and it's such a plague, isn't it? Because you risk really then is. of them getting infected if you react badly to them. Exactly. So actually what I would often, I would often bring um, a kind of an antiseptic cream or um, there's a thing you can get as a prescription called Fusibet, which is an antibiotic with a little bit of steroid in it. It's great if you put it on early, it'll actually stop them getting infected and getting too inflamed. But often we don't think of it in time. Um, But they can get very infected and sometimes even cause cause a cellulitis, which can make you very unwell. So, you know, even though we, we primarily kind of worry about the implications of an infection, like malaria you'd get from a mosquito bite the the mosquito bites themselves are a bit of a misery as well so um, you do everything you can bring bring some stuff with you it's always useful to do that bring bringing little um a little first aid kit with you when you're going somewhere that you feel like you might be a little bit more vulnerable or not being able to access a pharmacy easily yeah i'm not sure why we're talking about travel health and all that in february but talk about it we are gp dr maura finn speaking with claire this morning And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shuridon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.